Good morning again. Glad that you're here this morning, regardless of the tasks ahead. I'm very thankful that you're here this morning. Thank you. And a special thanks to those who are joining us by uh, live stream. Uh, thank you as well. You also are joining us, so uh, thank you. We're making our way through Mark's gospel. I hope you're enjoying this journey. I'm learning an awful lot. Uh, it is a great privilege to uh, prepare these messages for you because, well, I'm preparing them for myself as well. So I hope you are enjoying this journey through Mark's gospel. Uh, we are this morning in Mark chapter 9, and we'll look at verses 14 through 29. There has been something uh, amazing that has happened just before this passage, a supernatural transfiguration. Uh, two brothers, James and John, along with Peter, got to see J Jesus uh, clothed in the radiant glory of God. They got to see Elijah and Moses uh, appear before them and speak to Jesus, all this before their eyes. And uh, while they were covered in a cloud, their ears took in the words of God who said, this is my beloved son, listen to him. And then they come down from that mountain into our scene this morning. And the scene this morning is messy. So little theologians, glad you're here. Thank you for being here. Uh, this is a messy passage, not because the Holy Spirit makes a mess, but because the very scene that is described here is pretty messy. So, little theologians, as you're listening to the, the mess and confusion of this passage of Scripture this morning, draw for me a picture of something that makes messes go away. You might draw a vacuum cleaner. They make messes go away. Calculator makes the messiness of a math problem go away. A cat. Right? If you have a mice problem, they're good to have. So little theologians, draw something that makes messes go away. Okay? Our passage again is Mark chapter 9, verse 14. Would you join me in prayer before the reading and preaching of God's Word? Father, we ask that you would course through our hearts by your Holy Spirit that we might have understanding would you use me as your own vessel, instrument, a means for understanding by the mercy of your Holy Spirit? And be with us as we read and as we hear this word. In Jesus' name, amen. So again, it's Mark chapter 9, and we'll begin at verse 14. And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with him. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with him? And someone from the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. 
And they brought the boy to him, and when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out, and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. This is the word of our Lord. Well, I do need you to hear me say very clearly that this passage is filled with confusion. You must notice that. You have this picture of these three disciples that are coming off the mountain, and before our passage this morning, we've already been told a little bit about the hearts of these disciples as they come down from the mountain. Verse 6 of this chapter says that they were terrified, that they didn't know what to say. And uh, verse 10, they're they're working hard to keep matters uh, to themselves because that's what Jesus told them to do. But even still, they're uh, questioning what much of this meant. And so those, those are the three disciples that are coming down off the mountain. They're confused. But then as they come off the mountain, they're actually greeted by more confusion. There's nine disciples at the base of the mountain, and these nine disciples, they're actually engaged in some kind of uh, argument, and we're told by Mark that it's an argument with the scribes, with the, uh, the, the powerful religious leaders of the day. These scribes, they uh, seem to be a part of the center of the crowd, and the nine disciples are uh, arguing, and, and notice that there, there, there actually is a crowd. It's not just the nine disciples, and it's not just the scribes. Uh, there is a crowd, and uh, it, it seems seems from verse 16 that, that somehow even the crowd is engaged in argumentation. So there's confusion that is rolling off of this mountain into a puddle of confusion at the base of the mountain, and we have to notice that. The reason you have to know that is because the very end of this passage is actually quite different, isn't it? Notice how serene everything gets at the end of this passage. Just jump forward to verse 26. There's a little boy. He's so serene, he's lying on the ground as if he's dead. Dead people don't make noise. And there he is. And then Jesus, again, it seems this this, uh, scene of serenity. Jesus, he takes this boy by the hand and he lifts him up. But there's no commentary on that. And and if this is happening, imagine uh, that the confusion, the the, the boiling confusion of the crowd and the disciples, it would simmer down for this. There's a dead little boy, and Jesus is lifting him up. 
And then almost, uh, just in case we miss this point, Mark tells us, notice that Jesus, he takes his disciples how? Privately. And he takes them into a house. Boiling confusion at the beginning of this passage. And then everything, it just settles. How? How does this happen? Well, that's a question that needs to be on our minds as we look at this passage, because what this passage is telling us is that only Jesus is able to replace that confusion with unconfusion, or to replace that confusion with peace. Or really, let me just state it this way. Only Jesus is able to replace confusion with salvation. And furthermore, only faith is able to access that salvation. And that's really what this passage is about as we watch confusion turn to unconfusion. That Jesus, uh, only Jesus, is able to replace confusion with salvation, and only faith is able to access that salvation. Well, the passage begins with this confusion, but not the confusion alone. It begins with Jesus actually entering into that confusion. And Jesus is going to enter that confusion, and what's going to happen is we're going to see this paradigm of uh, faith, what faith looks like, and a paradigm of works, namely what the works of Jesus look like. And so Jesus, he enters that confusion to teach us something about faith and about his ability to bring salvation, his works. Notice in verse 16 that Jesus, he, he enters this confusion with actually a very, very clear question. Uh, Jesus willingly descends this mountain uh, right into the confusion and inserts himself in that confusion in verse 16 by asking the question, what are you arguing about with them? Now, we don't see it in the English, but in the Greek, it's actually a very simple, poignant question. It's just four words in the Greek language. Massive confusion. Jesus enters that confusion and he asks a very simple question. In fact, having just read the passage, you can actually guess what the answer to the question might be. Jesus, he's asking a question that demands an answer that's just a topic, like the subject matter. Uh, what are you arguing about with them? And if you wanted to offer a simple answer, even just on the fly, you could say, well, they're arguing about Jesus, aren't they? There's something about Jesus. Disciples are trying to do something. It's not working. This guy, he's, he's got a, a, a terribly, supernaturally ill child, and he can't do anything, and he's uh, coming because he wants Jesus. What are you arguing about? It's about Jesus. That's what they're arguing about. But nobody produces an answer like that. You know when you walk in and you, you catch your child doing something a little bit crazy like, oh, I don't know, uh, coloring his brother's face with a magic marker? Why did you do that? Is that likely to be a long answer or a short answer? Is that likely to be a direct answer or an indirect answer? It's going to be a long, circuitous description of why it made great sense to color his brother's face with a marker. And there's something like that that happens when Jesus, he enters the confusion of our lives and Jesus asks a question. There's something about the confusion of our lives that make us incapacitated to answer. It's almost as if we are just rolled over with our circumstances and our circumstances are so overcoming, I can't answer the question. I don't have an answer for you, Jesus, but let me tell you what happened. And on and on and on, a little bit of justification, a little bit of truth, 
There's a story. And this is one of the awkward realities of Christianity, is that Christianity does this to us. Jesus, he says to those who refuse to believe him, he says, do you trust me for salvation? Well, the short answer is no, but oftentimes the answer is, well, wait a minute, Jesus. Christianity is not really for me. I have things pretty well under control. I know that guy. Christianity is really for that person. Perhaps giving some attention to him would be a bit better. And Jesus asks again, do you trust me for salvation? Well, okay, when I was a kid, no, do you trust me for salvation? Do you trust me for salvation? Answer the question, but there's something about the confusion of our world and the weight of our circumstances that makes it hard. But this happens to Christians as well. When we have just lost our job, do we really believe that Jesus is with us? And he asks, do you believe that I'm with you? Well, this is a really good job, Jesus. Worked really hard to get here. Not sure what's going to happen without the job. It's not a simple answer, is it? When we've lost our job, when we're struggling against terminal illness, when we've lost a dear loved one, and Jesus says, do you believe that I'm with you? No, really, do you believe that I'm with you? And it's the circumstances. And they're arguing, and Jesus, he calls a question to their argumentation. What are you arguing about with them? And what's remarkable is the person who offers an answer, it's not a direct answer, it's a story. This man captures his circumstances, and they just seem to roll out of his mouth because they first bubble up in his heart. He can't answer the question. My boy, he's sick. Keep in mind, by the way, that Jesus, he not only enters the confusion of the world, the world is a very confusing place. The, the Bible calls it a broken place in need of restoration only Jesus can bring. Jesus not only enters into a confused world, he enters into your confused heart. No one knows this father. First time he shows up in the Bible, not a hero of the faith, we're not, we're not told how faith is percolating in his heart in advance of this moment. He's the nobody. We have disciples. We have scribes. We have a crowd. And it's the nobody who answers. I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. That's the confusion of his world. And Jesus is right there with him face to face. If there's anything in this section of the passage that would give us a sense of an answer, the answer shows up in verse 18. The closest answer to Jesus' question, what are you arguing about with them, is this man somehow, like that little kid describing the marker on his brother's face, somehow coming into a circle to say something that's actually meaningful. And this man, he says, they were not able what are you arguing about? Let me tell you my circumstances, Jesus, but at the end of the day, they were not able. The man is displaying his own ability and his confusion. There is an inability for us to control our circumstances. Don't all of us have a certain sense of, well, I don't know how to say it. It could be covetousness, but it could also be uh, anger for those whose lives seem to be totally together. 
right kind of upbringing, right amount of money, right college, right job, right paycheck, right decision-making, right looks. All of us have suspicions about people like that for some reason, right? Here's the reason. Because we know that the world is actually very, very confusing. And it's hard to make sense of this world, and it's hard to swim through the circumstances that we experience, and it's hard to predict those circumstances when death can come at any moment. I'm not able. And you're not able either. And it's the lack of ability that needs to be called out in order for this confusion to actually be dealt with. And in verse 19, Jesus, he replies. Uh, Jesus, he's the one who actually uh, offers an answer. Do you see that in verse 19? Jesus answered. Jesus asks a question. No sufficient answer arises. And Jesus is the one who answers. And he answers not to the man, the father. He actually answers to everyone. See there in verse 19. He answered them. And it could be the disciples. I think, however, it's the crowd that Jesus is making his voice known. And he says, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? And this is about the generation. That's why I've I've said to you that the confusion is the confusion of the world. Jesus is talking about the very era of the people uh, with whom uh, have his presence. These people, they have been preached to by Jesus for many years. And Jesus addresses them, including the disciples. And he says, you are without faith. Literally, it's without belief or without trust anti-belief, in fact. And even now the circumstances are off the charts challenging. Right now, can you admit that? Your circumstances are off the charts challenging because you can't solve them. And how quickly our hearts become one with the generation and we are without faith. But Jesus' reply really has more to do with faith at this point or with himself at this point than it does with faith. He says he's with them and he's bearing with them. That's really important to notice because only Jesus is able to replace the confusion with salvation and Jesus is about to show us what that looks like. And he begins in verses 20 through 25 with this this paradigm of what faith looks like. And we see in verse 20 that the boy, he is brought to Jesus by the very father of the boy. But the focus isn't actually on the boy, but really on the father. The boy is deaf and mute, so he can't speak. But all of this interaction with the dad is really meant for the crowd. That Jesus, he's talking to the dad, but all of that dialogue is really meant for the crowd. The crowd has to listen to what's about to happen. And Jesus is going to describe what faith looks like. And notice the situation with the boy couldn't be any worse. The spirit within the boy is immediately opposed to Jesus and convulses him, takes him right to the ground. You can almost sense this spirit trying to drag this boy to the dust, to death. And this has been happening since he was a small child. And you see right there in verse 22 that exactly the spirit is seeking the child's death. The spirit wants to destroy him with fire, with water. Common elements, they're everywhere. This verse 22 seems to include the concern of the boy's mother. You see what he says there. He says, help us. Well, who do you think the us is? It may be that the father is speaking on behalf of his wife. Help us. 
And then there's this little glimmer of sincerity in the words of the man, because you see in verse 22 there, uh, the words of a desperate man who wants his boy to be made well. And he says, if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. The father is, is, it looks as though he's seeking anything, but in the Greek, he's not just seeking anything. He's seeking something that comes from the compassion of Jesus. He knows that Jesus is full of compassion. In Mark's gospel, we've seen a number of instances in which Jesus has, or in which Mark has told us about Jesus' compassion. And this man, he is looking for that compassion, and he wants that compassion to open up, and he wants that compassion to roll on him. Amidst the disciples and the scribes and the crowd, he wants that compassion to roll upon him. Remember in verse 18, they're not able. The man is saying to Jesus, I need you to open your heart for me. And the question is about Jesus and who he is. His compassion, but will he open that heart of compassion for this unknown figure? And Jesus says that the only way to access that that compassion is to believe. And so he says in verse 23, all things are possible for one who believes. Grammatically, this is just four words, all possible believing one. Three words. All possible believing one. Three words. And this expression of Jesus is actually about uh, trust, the the role of trusting in Jesus for salvation. Uh, Jesus introduced this in verse 19 already, a faithless generation, generation that is ah faith, anti-faith, and now he is going to talk about what that faith looks like. And this man in verse 24, almost on cue, says, I believe, help my unbelief. I think it's important for you to cherish this verse. I believe, help my unbelief. The commentator James Edwards, he says that true faith is always aware of how small and how inadequate it is. There's no room in the Christian walk for an arrogant faith. True faith is always aware about its smallness and inadequacy. The same commentator goes on to say that the father becomes a believer not when he amasses a sufficient quantum of faith, no. He becomes a believer when he risks everything on what little faith that he has. True faith takes no confidence in self. Why? Because you're not able. Because you're not able. That's what's highlighted in verse 18. So maybe this is you. You sense the weakness of your trust, and you are afraid that that weakness of trust actually means nothing to Jesus. But in fact, your awareness of the weakness of your faith is extremely important to Jesus. Look what he said in verse 19, I am with you and I am bearing with you. We know from elsewhere that he is full of compassion. Jesus wants your weak faith. You see how there's this great picture of what faith looks like. But then there's this great picture of the work of Jesus, and some of this is going to be really surprising to you. Notice what Jesus does. Everything happens publicly. And beginning at verse 25, the crowd closes in, and then Jesus, with just his very words, he makes this little boy well. He speaks. And everyone can hear what he's saying. And his speaking words are are very present. He rebukes, and he says, and he commands. And his promise is that this will never happen again. Jesus says that publicly. This will never happen again to this little boy. Almost as if to put an exclamation point on his ability, 
Jesus then allows this little boy to lay like a dead corpse. Jesus has delivered him of the Spirit. He has spoken that. It's been noticed. An exclamation point of who is able? Jesus is able. And then he allows that little boy to lay there like a dead body. Maybe this is when the crowd really begins to gather in closely. There's certainly silence. Two words of death are used in verse 26 to describe this boy. He's like a corpse, and people say he's dead. And then Jesus, he walks up to him, and he takes him by the hand, and he lifts him up. And Mark says that the boy, he arose. The father teaches us a lot about faith, but this little boy actually teaches us a lot about the work of Jesus. And let me tell you why. There are so many similarities between this little boy and how he's described and Jesus, who is our Lord and Savior. Now, you may not notice this, and you may be thinking about this all day or all week, but stay with me. This little boy in verse 17, he's called a son. Jesus is the Son of God. And this little boy, since childhood, has had a spirit that has opposed him. Think of Jesus' temptation in the wilderness. This little boy has uh, suffered since childhood, and Jesus himself took upon human nature and suffered in that nature every day of his life. This spirit has made this boy uh, suffer just as Jesus suffers in his human nature, but this spirit has also tried to destroy him, and the same word for destroy has been applied to the Pharisees who've tried to destroy him and are planning to do so, and the Herodians who have, uh, are planning to destroy him. And then as the boy lies dead, Mark uses the same word that Jesus has used in 831 to say what would happen to him. He will be killed is what Jesus said to his disciples. And that same word for killed is used in our passage here to describe this boy. He looks like he has been killed. And when the boy is risen, Isn't this exactly what Jesus said would happen to him? After three days, I will rise. And it's the same word that's used here. You see, this is how the compassion of Jesus is unleashed. We trust Jesus, but it's the work of Jesus that saves. And there's no other way. He is the only one who is able. And this is how that work is done. That Jesus, he dies and he rises again from the dead. And that's pictured in this little boy. And Jesus knows this. And you need to take note of it as well. What comes into the confusion? Jesus is able to replace confusion with salvation. And only faith is able to access that salvation. Are you confused this morning? If you're here this morning and you're not a believer, you know you're confused. You know that there are injustices and lack of peace and disharmony uh, in this world. You know that. You know that you haven't the ability to secure uh, not only your eternal life, but you can't even secure tomorrow. You know that. We could lose our our lives this very afternoon. And if you're here this morning as a believer, You need to acknowledge that same confusion. Yes, the world is a broken place, but he is with you and he bears with you and one day you will see him face to face and you'll taste the restoration that he brings to the confusion. Only Jesus is able to replace confusion with salvation. The end of this passage is more a reminder for the believer than perhaps those who don't believe, but the end of the passage has to do with prayer. And this is the strangest answer that Jesus says this kind, this, this kind of spirit cannot be driven out, literally worked out by anything but prayer. 
And this could be, though it's very confusing and hard to tell, this could be an admonishment to us as Christians to speak to Jesus in our prayers, to know that he is with us and bearing with us. That's what this reminder might be. That's why it's private and to the disciples. Only Jesus can deal with the confusion of your life, and he comes to you, and he asks, will you trust me? And he shows for you the way that salvation happens, his death on the cross and his resurrection. Only Jesus can deal with that confusion. But would you join me in prayer? Our Father, thank you. You speak to us. You don't leave us to wallow in our confusion. You don't leave us to uh, cry out in pain amidst our circumstances. You come to us and are with us in Jesus. Jesus, we thank you. We ask that you would sustain us. We ask that you would use all of the confusion of our lives in this world for our good and for your glorious purpose. And we pray, come, Jesus, come. Amen.